KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. A special program today on the lingering harms of U.S. chattel slavery. Reparation for the institution of slavery is a specific and sacred political project. I'm Jade Hindman. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. We'll talk about health disparities. Black Californians and Black Americans in general live sicker and die younger. And the wealth gap and reparations in education. Because when this boat rises for Black folk, it rises for everybody. Then, how to begin tracing one's own lineage. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. A new report from the State Reparations Task Force connects the beginnings of chattel slavery in the United States and lasting harms it caused to the oppression of Black Americans to this day. It's the task force's first step in recommending how the state can repair that harm. Joining me now to talk about the report and its recommendations is Camila Moore. She is the chair of the California Reparations Task Force. Camila, welcome back to the program. Thanks so much for having me. So this report is is really a history book documenting the painstaking details of the dehumanization of enslaved people and making direct links to laws that have been passed since the abolishment of slavery in the U.S. in order to maintain a system of oppression of Black people. Why is it important for the task force to lay out this groundwork to make the case for reparations in California? Well, it's important because, you know, that's what we were charged to do by virtue of AB 3121. This legislation matters for a few reasons, but primarily reparations for the institution of U.S. chattel slavery is a specific and sacred political project that actually originated with the enslaved themselves, like Belinda Sutton and like Hallie House. And that debt is a debt owed. And the descendants of those enslaved people in America are standing in the shoes of their ancestors to claim this unpaid debt. What are some of your key takeaways from the report? 
So some of the key takeaways from the report for me is that, again, you know, California, there's this dominant narrative that California entered into the union as a free state. There's this dominant narrative that Jim Crow and racism didn't exist in California. You know, those dominant narratives have been pretty much altogether dispelled. And we learned very early on in the process how these institutions and these discriminatory policies have not only affected African-Americans in the past, but has also had on going effects on the outcomes of the African-American community today. But more particularly, if we if we even want to point to a particular section in the report, chapter 13, the last chapter on the wealth gap is amazing because California, the state of California via this report is speaking boldly. And you'll find in that chapter, you know, an assertion that the wealth disparity exists in this country because of systematic racial discrimination that in and of itself is a badge and incident of U.S. shadow slavery. And that term that you mentioned, badges of slavery, that's important to the conversation. Will you explain what that means? The institution of slavery was formally abolished by virtue of the 13th Amendment. And then later on in 1883, the Supreme Court interpreted the 13th Amendment as empowering Congress to pass all laws necessary and proper for abolishing all badges and incidents of slavery in the United States. However, we found through our research, and this is outlined particularly in the introduction of our report, that throughout the rest of American history, including to present day, instead of the federal government abolishing the badges and incidents of slavery, that being discriminatory policies and how it manifests to affect the lives of the African-American community. Instead of doing that, the United States federal, state, and local governments, including the state of California, perpetuated and created new iterations of these badges and incidents. We outlined racial terror, separate and unequal education, political disenfranchisement, housing segregation, racism and environment and infrastructure, the pathologizing of the Black family, control over creative, cultural, and intellectual life, stolen labor and hindered opportunity, an unjust legal system, mental and physical harm and neglect, and then lastly, the wealth gap. Each of the chapters, as I just outlined, are considered badges and incidents of slavery. And to repair some of those badges of slavery, this report makes dozens of preliminary recommendations. Can you highlight a few of those recommendations and why you think they're important? There is a preliminary recommendation for the California state legislature to implement a California African-American Freedmen Affairs Agency. And within that agency would be housed an office of genealogy, whereby you know professional certified expert genealogists could assist the descendant community with confirming their eligibility. That would also be the institution where, you know, reparations in the form of compensation, rehabilitation, restitution, satisfaction, and guarantees of non-repetition would be dispensed. There's some other preliminary recommendations in the report related to education. We noted in the report how African-Americans have been denied the human right to education for the majority of our existence in the United States. And so we uh, came up with a few preliminary recommendations, one of them being that, you know, African-Americans who descend from chattel slavery will receive free public college tuition at public four-year public colleges and universities in the state of California. There's also a preliminary recommendation in there that would require the state to allocate resources so that African-Americans can create 
their own schools uh, to account for the fact that no African Americans currently attend schools in segregated areas, and with school segregation um, comes under resourced schools. So African Americans, by virtue of living in segregated areas, have to go to segregated schools, and those schools are under resourced. Not only are those schools under resourced, African American children also have to navigate the precarious school to prison pipeline as well. And so, you know, we learned through our research that. You know, schools aren't necessarily safe for African-American children. So what does reparations look like? What could it look like? And that could potentially be the state allocating resources so that African-Americans can create their own schools where they feel safe and secure and where the curriculum reflects them as well. But we're also in, in the preliminary recommendation related to education. We're also recommending, you know, curriculum changes to the school systems that actually still ex that exist now so that. Um, the curriculum is reflective of African-American history. And you are chair of California's Reparations Task Force. What does it mean to you as a descendant of enslaved people yourself to be doing this work? So it means a lot to be a descendant of enslaved people and doing this work. It feels very affirming uh, to my ancestors who experienced chattel slavery. And it also feels affirming because, you know, as an African-American descendant of chattel slaves, you know, there's every African-American, I think, has experienced, right, confronting or being impacted by the lingering effects of chattel slavery and namely confronting and being impacted by the badges and incidents of slavery. So, you know, it's been a very emotional, cathartic and, you know, personally rewarding experience for me. Earlier this year, the task force voted to define eligibility for reparations. Uh, they define it as descendants of an enslaved Black person or of a free Black person living in the U.S. before the end of the 19th century. Why do you think a lineage standard is so important to this process? So a lineage standard is, is so important to this process for a few reasons, particularly if you look at the, the statute itself, AB 3121. You know, I noted this in our March hearing where we voted to affirm lineage-based reparations as a standard for eligibility, right? If you look at the statute, um, the provisions are lineage-based. So for instance, you know, the state of California by virtue of the statute is required to execute a formal apology, and then it defines who the beneficiary class of that apology would be, right? It doesn't say the state of California is, is required to apologize to all Black people for slavery. It says verbatim, California is required to apologize to freed African slaves and their descendants, those being the freed African slaves who were freed by virtue of the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and their descendants who became U.S. citizens by virtue of the 14th Amendment in 1868. So the statute I think was controlling why affirming a lineage-based standard was so important. The task force's work with community groups, uh, as you mentioned, to explore what state reparations might consist of uh, has already begun. Here's a clip from someone who attended a meeting last week in Oakland. My father was born in Mobile, Alabama. My mom was born in Macomb, Mississippi. They still Remember, Cujo Lewis, one of the last slaves to be brought over from West Africa. As you hear these stories, I mean, why is it important to engage the community in this conversation about reparations? Well, it's important primarily because, you know, as a reparatory justice scholar who has 
studied human rights law, you know, it's a standard that, you know, the descendants, the victim group is supposed to be leading what reparations looks like, not the state. And so I think that's why it's so important for the task force to center community voices, because the community is supposed to be leading the charge around what reparations looks like. And so you know, that's why throughout this year-long process, some of the highlights for me are you know, always the public comment period, the public testimony and witness period, as well as the community listening sessions that we're having over the summer, where we're increasing opportunities for the community to become more aware and engage with this process and for them to share with the task force what reparations looks like to them. I've been speaking with Camila Moore. She is the chair of the California Reparations Task Force. Camila, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Jane. Over the next hour, we will be exploring four aspects of the report. How oppression and discrimination of Black people throughout the nation's history created a wealth gap, health disparities, and the role of education in reparations, as well as the important work of tracing your family lineage. Right after the break, we'll talk with a leading economist about the wealth gap and what it would take to repair that damage. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Beth Accomando, KPBS arts reporter and host of the Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm also a geeky gourmet who likes to bake food themed to the movies I watch, like chocolate blood to savor with Dracula, or an extra chewy Wookiee cookie to enjoy with Star Wars. I'm geeky about the things I love, and that makes me a public radio geek as well. I love being able to connect with audiences just like you through TV, radio, the web, and podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. So, are you a KPBS geek? If so, then I'm asking you to get in touch with your inner nerd and become a member of KPBS today. Just go to kpbs.org and click the blue Give Now button and make a donation. That's right. Let's geek out together about the things we love. You're listening to a KPBS Midday Edition special on reparations in California. I'm Jade Hindman. Among the leading arguments for reparations in the United States is the need to close the nation's racial wealth gap. As evidence, economists often point to the massive disparity in personal wealth between white and black Americans. Estimates from the Federal Reserve's 2019 survey of consumer finances indicate that the average black household had over $800,000 less in net worth than that of their white counterparts. One of the leading voices on this discussion is Professor William Darity Jr., a professor of African and African-American studies and economics at Duke University. He is also co-author of the book, From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century. And he joins us now. Professor Darity, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Can you put into context just how big the wealth gap is between Black and white Americans? The average Black household has more than $800,000 less in net worth than the average white household. And if we were to distribute that differential across individuals, it would amount to a gap in wealth per person between Blacks and whites of approximately $350,000. So that if we were thinking about a family of four, as opposed to a household of approximately three people, for a family of four, the racial wealth gap would be essentially one 
million. The average level of, of wealth for a white household is in the vicinity of $980,000, and it's closer to $135,000 for the average black household. If we put a dollar amount to how much America would need to pay in reparations for just the stolen labor with interest, how much would that be? Estimates have run as high as $6.2 quadrillion. But if we're focused on the racial wealth gap, then the amount is still quite large, but it's not as stunningly large. To close the racial wealth gap would require an expenditure of at least $14 trillion. There's been a lot of debate about what reparations would actually look like, whether that's direct payments or less liquid forms. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I certainly think it should be direct payments, but direct payments can, as you suggested, take a variety of forms. One form is a cash payment, but there could be uh, the provision of reparations as a direct payment in less liquid form. This could include the provision of people with a trust account or an annuity or some other type of endowment. The advantage of having a less liquid asset as the form of reparations is you create a greater assurance that people will be building wealth uh, as opposed to simply receiving a flow of income. And you also would ensure that the funds would not necessarily be spent all at one time which would preclude having a dramatic effect on inflation. In your book, From Here to Equality, you argue that reparations should go to Black American descendants of people enslaved in the United States. Why is that? There is a debt that is owed to Black American descendants of U.S. slavery that's associated with the initial failure of the federal government to provide the promised 40-acre land grants that were due to the formerly enslaved as restitution for their years of bondage. And that's the trigger that produces the existing racial wealth gap, because at the same time as the federal government was failing to provide the newly emancipated persons with the 40-acre land grants, it was providing one and a half million white families with 160-acre land grants in the Western territories under the terms of the Homestead Act. And so today, there's approximately 45 million living white Americans who continue to be beneficiaries of the Homestead Act land grants. So white Americans received 160-acre land grants per family. Black Americans received absolutely nothing. And that's the foundation for the this huge disparity in wealth that we observe today because of the intergenerational transmission of resources. And, you know, a large part of this discussion is reckoning with the way discriminatory housing policies also impacted Black households. How can this be rectified through reparations? Discriminatory housing policies are another factor that has reinforced the racial wealth gap. In the 19th century, the federal government emphasized asset building by the distribution of land, although it did that in a discriminatory fashion. In the 20th century, the federal government has emphasized asset building via home ownership, and it also did that in a discriminatory fashion. But all of those effects cumulatively are captured by the existing difference in wealth between blacks and whites, which is another reason why we focus on the wealth gap as the central target for a reparations program. Kirsten Mullen and I, in our book, From Here to Equality, have said quite plainly that the racial wealth gap is the best economic indicator of the cumulative effects of white racism in the United States. 
we're talking about historical precedents here, and we've talked about how housing discrimination uh, contributed to the racial wealth gap. What else has contributed to that racial wealth gap? Tragically, there have been upwards of 100 massacres that took place from the end of the Civil War to the start of World War II. Probably the example that is most familiar to many people as a consequence of the anniversary last year is the Tulsa massacre. And the consequences of these massacres was not only the extensive taking of Black lives, but the white terrorists also frequently seized and appropriated Black-owned property. And so as a consequence, this widened the racial wealth gap. You've also argued that reparations would need to be facilitated at the federal level. Why not state or municipal governments? One reason is that the federal government is the party that is capable of meeting the reparations bill. The minimum amount of funds that would be required to eliminate the racial wealth gap is $14 trillion. The total combined budgets of all state and local governments in the United States comes to less than $3.5 trillion. The second reason is the federal government is the culpable party. The sets of policies that we've been talking about that have produced the racial wealth gap are policies that have been engineered at the federal level. And so as a consequence, the federal government has the responsibility for eliminating the racial wealth gap through a reparations plan. We've seen a lot of political support for reparations, but how far along is actual tangible progress in making it a reality? I think that there has been progress in terms of public attitudes towards reparations. And I think people are actually a bit surprised when I say that because they point out that 65% of Americans are opposed to monetary reparations for Black Americans. But that means that somewhere in the vicinity of about 35% are in favor. And so there has been a sea change in attitude just within the white community. You know, I'm not sure that this is something that's sustainable, but the momentum is pointing in the right direction. And it does open the door of the possibility for improving the level of support for reparations until we get into a zone where it becomes politically feasible. I've been speaking with economist and researcher William Darity Jr. Professor Darity, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. As we've been hearing, reparations and the forms they can take cover a wide range of areas. And one of those is education. The state's task force on reparations recently started holding community listening sessions in order to get feedback on what shape reparations may take. Here is what one community member had to say during their first listening session in Oakland back on May 28th. The cost of reducing class sizes so that our kids can get the personal attention and the support that they need, that to me would be one of the ways in which we can provide reparations. Because when this boat rises for Black folk, it rises for everybody. And much of what we hear when it comes to education and reparations highlights free tuition and scholarships for African-American Californians. And those are indeed part of the task force's report. But the conversation of education and reparations also includes how and what our children are taught inside the classroom across the state. Here to talk more about this is Professor Joyce E. King. 
professor of educational policy studies at Georgia State University and president of the Academy for Diaspora Literacy. She is also a former member of the National African American Reparations Commission. Professor King, welcome to Midday Edition. Thank you very much, Jade. So what was your reaction to the interim report that the California Reparations Task Force released last week? Well, I was very happy to see that the recommendation that I made in my expert testimony to the task force in April was included as a native Californian and a grandmother who has children in California schools. I was really pleased that um, the recommendation that I made regarding Black Studies curriculum and education for teachers was included in the task force report. But what role do you see for education when it comes to reparations? We usually think of reparations as money, but it certainly goes beyond that. It goes to the way teachers are prepared and school leaders. We know that the data shows that African-American and Hispanic students, other uh, underrepresented groups, lag behind their potential. So we have a crisis in terms of young people not being able to read or do mathematics. So where the money goes should have some impact on student outcomes. As you mentioned, you provided testimony to the California Reparations Task Force. What was the focus of your testimony? I asked the commission to think about why we need Black Studies theory, curriculum, and pedagogy in teacher preparation. There's a lot of movement across the country incorporating ethnic studies courses, which is good. There's research that shows that ethnic studies courses have a very powerful impact on students. There's less attention being played to what Black studies is about and those potential benefits. One of the recommendations made in the interim report released last week highlighted the importance of teacher training, uh, aiming to, quote, adopt new models for teacher development to improve teacher habits in the classroom. Can you talk a bit about that? Sort of the common sense place to begin is to say we can't teach what we don't know. So we have a teaching force that's predominantly white. I worked in teacher education in California for 12 years when I was director of teacher education at Santa Clara University. And so I know the journey that teachers have to make to make up for their own miseducation. And teacher preparation is one of those areas that, again, we see efforts, but not necessarily impact in terms of the benefits for students. So the whole field of teacher preparation at the college undergraduate level and the professional level needs to take into account these disparities that I've talked about for students. You were involved in a recent research project on education in Silicon Valley. Uh, What did that research entail and and what did you learn? In 2018, I was invited, uh, my colleague and I, Dr. Linda Tillman, and I were invited to do a study on Black education by the Black Leadership Kitchen Cabinet of Silicon Valley. And we were asked to look at the community's definition of quality education, students' access, barriers, and policies that are hindering students' success. We learned that Black students in that particular area lag behind white students and Asian students in their academic performance. We learned that parents and students consider teachers' low expectations to be a problem, and we learned that the Curriculum issues are a problem. And very poignantly, parents reported that they don't feel that 
educators protect their children from racism and discrimination in school. You point to the San Francisco Unified School District as a recent example of proposing a Black Studies curriculum that uh, addresses some of what's been missing in our schools. What is the state of those educational reforms there? Well, we do need to remember that Black Studies is more than just Black history. It really goes across the curriculum, and it's for the benefit of all students, not just students of African ancestry. What I know is that in October, the San Francisco Unified School District Board passed a resolution, support for creating a K-12 Black Studies curriculum that honors Black lives, fully represents the contributions of Black people in a global society, and advances the ideology of Black liberation for Black scholars in the San Francisco Unified School District. Although the resolution was passed, it has not been implemented. What do you see as a consequence of not implementing this type of curriculum in schools for all students, really? What's really at stake is our democracy and real lives, not learning your place in society, what it means to be a human being and how your community has helped to shape not only this society, but the world that has serious implications and it prevents us from being unified at the community level, societally, and globally. In your testimony to the task force, you talk about how we need to re-examine how we teach students about the history of slavery in this country. Can you talk more about that? I use that particular topic as an example to kind of make concrete what we call the legacies of slavery. Um, But we don't start this story with slavery. We have to understand that the African-American story doesn't begin with slavery, even though it's represented that way. And it's misrepresented in inaccurate ways in textbooks and in popular consciousness. What we get is the story that Africans sold Africans. And so when I say we need Black studies theorizing, uh, we need to look at the scholarship that corrects those kinds of misrepresentations. And one of the ways that we can understand that, very simply, there were no Africans then. There were no Africans selling their own brothers and sisters and selling other Africans because People on the continent didn't see themselves as one people, nor did the French, Dutch, Portuguese, British see themselves as one people. So we have to go back and correct those misrepresentations that have really been used to justify slavery. And you've been working and advocating for improving education results for Black and Brown students for decades now, and I'm sure you've seen ideas like these uh, really come and go. Are you optimistic that California will see fundamental changes in how we teach our kids? I remain optimistic. I I have to be optimistic. I was a student activist in the 60s, and so I've seen change come and be resisted and change come again. So California definitely has an opportunity not only to address the legacies of slavery in education, but in all of the other areas that the commission looked at. And the fact that this is public, that people are being educated, that the scholarship is being taken seriously, and that the political community is engaged gives us hope. But we're in a context where the society is really divided. And so we have to find ways to reach 
across our divides and uh, advance understanding. And so one of the things I teach in my classes is I say to my students, we're not looking for villains. We're not looking for victims. We want to understand how the system works so we can make it better. I've been speaking with Dr. Joyce E. King, Professor of Educational Policy Studies at Georgia State University and President of the Academy for Diaspora Literacy. Professor King, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And we wanted to note, Professor King joined us today as an individual scholar and not on behalf of Georgia State University or the state of Georgia. Black Californians live sicker and die younger. That shorthand that public health experts sometimes use to describe the health disparities that affect black people in the state and across the country. They include higher maternal death rates and poor infant health outcomes, delayed cancer diagnosis and higher cancer death rates, higher rates of hypertension, cholesterol, diabetes and obesity. The list goes on and on. As an associate professor in the School of Social Welfare at UC Berkeley, Tina Sachs studied the social detriments of those disparities. From birth to death, she says, Black people suffer a greater disease burden than their white counterparts. I spoke with Professor Sachs about some of the state reparations task force's preliminary recommendations related to health harms. I started by asking why the disparities exist in the first place. So this is complicated and uh, has to do with the way that that American society really uh, began, as well as the way it is structured in the present. So Black people suffer from or face structural discrimination. And so Black people are more likely to live in poverty, are disproportionately represented among homeless uh, populations in California in particular, but across the country. Uh, Black people are more likely to live in neighborhoods that are um, have environmental health problems, so high airborne particulate matter, which leads to uh, disproportionate rates of asthma, um, live in housing. They're more likely to live in housing that has uh, lead paint, so you see higher lead poisoning rates among Black children. You see that, uh, particularly during COVID, you see that Black people are overrepresented among what we call essential workers, who are people who we cannot survive without, except their essential nature puts them on the front lines at risk of exposure to um, infectious diseases like COVID. So all across the board, Black people uh, face more health risks than other people in uh, in the population. And these risks are compounded because there are so many of these problems that sort of cluster among Black people. So Black people are disproportionately affected by a whole range of things that make their health worse. California's Reparations Task Force has a number of preliminary recommendations for reparations uh, related to the mental and physical harms you mentioned uh, experienced by Black people in this country. We'll touch on a few of those. So one is to create free health care programs. Can you talk about how access to free health care could begin to repair some of the damage to health uh, really caused by systemic racism? The healthcare encounter, the uh, the institution of American healthcare, has not been hospitable to Black people in many ways. One are the biases that people encounter once they reach the the reach the provider's office, and two, of course, is the the unequal access to care all around. So. 
Black people are more likely to work in fields that don't necessarily have adequate healthcare coverage or healthcare coverage at all, uh, are working in fields that don't necessarily have paid sick leave. And so these kinds of health and uh, health and social policy interventions that increase access to care are extremely important for uh, making sure that people can have the kind of healthcare experience that they deserve and want the kinds of healthcare treatment that could mitigate some of the, the intergenerational uh, consequences of this kind of racial harm. And another preliminary recommendation from the task force is to, quote, identify and eliminate the biases and discriminatory policies that lead to the higher rate of maternal injury and death among Black women. Can you talk about both uh, why this is of critical importance and about the biases and discriminatory policies that are contributing to this issue? This is such a huge issue in in supposedly the most developed healthcare system in the world. I think that uh, one might argue with that characterization, although we tend to think of it that way in this country. I think that uh, you know not being able to guarantee that women and infants and people who uh, who give birth to uh, children to infants not being able to maintain or, uh, you know, really guarantee their safety is a huge problem for the largest democracy in the world. I think it says a lot about who we value in this country and whose lives we frankly devalue. And so that's why I think it's such a critical issue that must be addressed. Certainly in terms of the, the biases that women uh, face, I think that, that, Black people, Black women who are um, uh, delivering their babies often face a lack of credibility during the healthcare encounter. When women complain of pain, they are often thought to be um, uh, drug seeking, drug users, having a substance problem. Uh, People don't tend to take them seriously when they are uh, recounting their own feelings or their own knowledge of their their bodies. Um, In much the same way that Serena Williams, who is obviously one of the most famous athletes in the world, um, when she told her physician when she was delivering her child that she knew she was having a pulmonary embolism, she was not believed. And clearly, this is a person who knows her own body, right? So Black women are not granted the same sense of credibility or ownership or agency over um, our own bodies in the same way that other people are. Our pain is not taken as seriously. And our lives are really devalued. And I think that these kinds of encounters, particularly in the vulnerability of delivering a child. Um, It really says a lot about who we are as a society, but also there certainly is the opportunity to improve and to do better. And, And healthcare providers, I think, around the country are trying to do just that. Ultimately, how do you see reparations in California helping the overall health of African Americans here? I think the first issue for me is that we have to stop harming Black people. So it's very important to look backward to say that um, that that slavery uh, is a particular kind of harm, and it had this sort of cascading effect through the generations, both economically, health-wise, mental health-wise, in every area of life. The first issue here is that we have to stop doing harm in the present, and 
the task force made several amazing recommendations as to how we can do that. So we really have to attack this from all different levels because it's all connected, right? So the homelessness, poverty, living in neighborhoods that don't have uh, the proper kinds of amenities for Black people, all of those things are important. And reparations, monetary reparations, could potentially mitigate some of the effects of that. And that would go a long way toward improving both the mental and physical health, health of Black California as well as Black Americans in general. I've been speaking with Tina Sachs, Associate Professor in the School of Social Welfare at UC Berkeley. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Still ahead, we continue our special program on reparations for the descendants of U.S. chattel slavery with a conversation about how to begin tracing one's own lineage and the importance of genealogical work. When she puts her fingers in the soil, she can feel the blood of her ancestors there. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. Public radio programs attract educated consumers and business decision makers. You can reach this highly desirable audience with your company's marketing message on KPBS. Isn't it time to make our listeners your customers? Find out how by calling 619-594-5715 today. You're listening to a KPBS Midday Edition special on reparations in California. I'm Jade Hindman. California's Reparations Task Force has defined eligibility standards for reparations among Black Californians as descendants of an enslaved Black person or of a free Black person living in the U.S. before the end of the 19th century. Being able to trace one's lineage is an important aspect of this conversation. So joining me with more on that is Evelyn A. McDowell, who is with the Sons and Daughters of the United States Middle Passage. She also gave testimony during the hearings, now cemented in the interim report. Evelyn, welcome to Midday Edition. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be here. So where does one start when tracing their family lineage? Well, my advice You want to start with knowing your oldest relative. You want to find your oldest living relative. And when you find that person, book time to talk to them immediately. You want to take your cell phone and record them. And you want to ask them who is the oldest person that they remember. And you want to ask them their name, as much as information as they can remember about them. And you want to get all of that information on tape. And then after you get all this information from all of your oldest living relatives, then you want to start verifying the data. You want to go back and, okay, so she says she remembers her grandmother and her grandmother was, you know, Jane Doe. Um, You want to go back and find out that if she remembers the name correctly, you want to go back and find any records that you can about that person. And, And you just want to start by verifying all of that information. You know, some people may think the process of tracing family lineage is difficult because of the way Black families were torn apart and sold during slavery. But you say it's actually not difficult. I'm not going to say it's not difficult. I think uh, genealogy in it of itself is not the easiest thing, okay? Uh, I mean, it takes some effort. Uh, But it's not impossible, and it's definitely doable. That's what I would say. All you have to do is uh, recognize that most of people of African descent, they didn't come here of their free, own free will. Uh, they came here um, as a result of being brought over here as, um, as enslaved people. If you remember that, 
you just need to get to somebody who was born before the end of slavery, who was of African descent. And so you can get to someone that was born in uh, 1865. And doing that is not as difficult as one would think. And for me, in my case, it was my great grandmother, just two generations away. My great grandmother was born um, in 1858 in uh, Alabama. And so she was born enslaved. So I just had to get to those two generations. During the reparations task force hearings, uh, you talked about the role government can play in helping people do this. Tell us a bit more about that. Well, I suggested um, that, and I still do, we can do what's called reverse genealogy. Well, we know that the first time um, enslaved people in mass numbers were enumerated in the census on the 1870 census, for example. And we can ask um, the government to help by identifying those people on the 1870 census, for example, and then doing reverse genealogy, finding out who their descendants are. Put this information in a database that can be accessed by um, African-Americans who are uh, living today. In a listening session held by the task force recently, we hear stories from people about the importance of tracing their own lineage. Take a listen. We have been here for a very long time. And as one of the representatives that we helped said, when she puts her fingers in the soil, she can feel the blood of her ancestors there. You know, and that is from one woman who found out that her family uh, was a family of gardeners. And she was surprised to learn that because she herself is a gardener now. Uh, Aside from reparations, when you hear stories like that, why is it so important to do this genealogy work? You know, I love that story. I, I, I get chills. I always do. I get chills when I think about people doing this work and I hear these stories. At Sons and Daughters of the United States Middle Passage, we have an annual conference, which is going to happen this weekend, as a matter of fact. And um, we hear these stories all the time. It is so important, not only for reparation purposes, uh, to know who your ancestors are. I have the saying, you don't know who you are until you know who they were. And, you know, I've, I've learned so much about who I am. Um, as, uh, you know, as a person, I, I learned that my fourth great grandfather fought for the American Revolution. He was European. And I found out that my second great grandmother uh, was a, a woman who was uh, living on a plantation. Um, she identified as white. And uh, she most likely found someone who was enslaved to have children with, um, which is my great grandfather. And I mean, these things, I had no idea uh, until I I did this work. And even as uh, my, even learning after my father passed away, he was a Montford Point uh, Marine uh, who uh, was one of the, and that's the first class of Marines um, of of color. And I had no idea that I was a daughter of someone uh, of such um, uh, significance uh, in, in our history. And then, you know, learning about enslaved people and learning how this country would not be what it is today had they uh, not lived and and had they not been here and contributed their labor. Um, Learning, uh, you know, about uh, redlining and how my family was affected by it. You know, so much of who I am 
and what I was born with, uh, uh, you know, the, the circumstances that I, I had when I was born came way, way before I, I lived. You know, what happened to my great-grandfather, my great-great-grandfather, um, what happened to them affect who I am today, where, I'm where I was born. Um, the segregation in this country uh, relegated my family to a, a, a place in Cleveland, Ohio, and uh, which was segregated, you know, and, and this happened not just when I was born, it, it led up, I mean, years and years and years uh, before I was born that led up to that particular moment. So it is extremely important for yourself, for your own self-love to know who you are and where you came from so you can identify how you fit in the history of this country. So I, I just think it, it, it is a, it's a good thing for us individually to do. It's a good thing for our country to do. How are we ever gonna heal from this history of slavery? Uh, I heard an estimate 10 million people were enslaved. How are we ever going to realize the harm, the effects um, that was done to those people, you know, in, in the wound that still exists in this country. We can never ever um, heal those wounds unless we understand how they were developed. I've been speaking with Evelyn A. McDowell, president of the Sons and Daughters of the United States Middle Passage. Evelyn, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. 